Heavenly Father, thank you for the love of the saints. Thank you for so many ways in which you show yourself to us in the body of Christ. We see the world around us and we recognize how many of them, Father, need to know what we know. How many of them lack for what we have by your grace. And on a Sunday morning, Father, it's our best chance each week perhaps to to really sense that, to really see all that you're doing in our lives and to hear how you're working in others as well around us. And we just want to give you that thanks here in this moment, not to take anything for granted. Least of all, Father, the privilege that it is to study in your word every Sunday. I'm often confronted with conversations among others in the faith who attend in other places, and I'm always struck, Father, by how often their needs center around a lack of knowledge of your word, and they just don't know what they're missing. But you know, Father, and you've called all of us to know. And I thank you, Father, that you've given us the privilege to receive instruction. Let the word do its work today, Father. Let us be yielding to what we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our story of Abraham is actually drawing to a close. Not today, not in this chapter, but it's coming very quickly. We're almost at the end. We only have a couple more chapters before we'll be noting his death, and we'll be moving on. We'll be moving on to the next patriarch, to Isaac, and what follows for him in his life. But even now, at the end of chapter 22, we actually finished just short of the last verses of 22. We'll, we'll pick up in verse 20 of chapter 22. And in this short section that concludes chapter 22 is actually Moses' attempt to prepare us for this transition, for our move away from Abraham into his son. And note where it comes. Moses is injecting this forward-looking section at the end of 22, right after Abraham's success on the mountain, right after he has that, that amazing moment with his son. Abraham's passed his test. He's graduated, in a sense, his faith having been demonstrated, the promises of God now secure in his heart. And so Moses lets us know we're ready to see where this promise goes next in the line of men that God is working in. But before Abraham can leave the earth and actually before we can leave his story, there are two matters of unfinished business in his life. And chapter 23 and chapter 24 are the two chapters that will deal respectively with each of these pieces of unfinished business. First, Abraham has to prepare a place on the earth for where he and his wife will be buried, where his physical body will rest in death. In that time and in that culture, and even really today, if you were to go travel to the East, Mideast today, proper burial was an incredibly important aspect of putting a life to rest properly. It conveys a lot about what you think of the person, of a respect for them and their legacy and their name. But Abraham, as you know, has nowhere in the land that he has spent the majority of his life now. He has nowhere in which he can call his own, a place that he can be certain will hold his body at death. He's never bought any land. He's never even allowed anyone to give him a portion of the land, lest they might claim that it was they that made Abraham blessed rather than the Lord. So he is pointedly refused any ownership in the land up until this moment. The closest he came was obtaining the right to sojourn in the land of Gerar. And he got a well, and you're not going to be buried in a well, so he really has nothing. He wants to be buried in a place he can call his own, and, of course, it'll become the resting place for his wife. So he needs to make arrangements to buy a plot of land, and up till now he hasn't done that. So that's a piece of unfinished business that we'll address today in chapter 23. 
But there is another issue for Abraham, one that's in some ways even more important. Abraham has to find a wife for his son. And that is easily the most important duty a patriarch had in that day and culture. Fathers selected the wives for their sons. They arranged the marriages. And this was of supreme importance. If it were not done properly, then it would reflect negatively on the family name and could create any number of other problems. It has to fall to the patriarch to make that decision. Now, Abraham, as you remember, has had Isaac late in his life. That's the whole story of Abraham, right? After he should have had children, he starts having children. And so you have to imagine he feels especially a sense of urgency around getting this question of who will be Isaac's wife settled before he dies. So today in chapter 23, we learn how he handles the first of those two priorities, the one of finding a resting place. And then in the coming weeks, as we move into chapter 24, we're going to see the second issue, Isaac's wife being addressed. But it's interesting here that at the end of chapter 22, the issue that actually gets addressed here briefly is the second of the two. Moses really jumps over the first issue just for a few verses and gives us some insight into how Isaac will eventually find his wife. And that tells us something about the connection between these two issues, that they are actually connected spiritually in a way that may not be obvious at first. We'll see that connection play out here over today and in the coming weeks. And now as I read to the end of chapter 22, I want to also note here that people love to give their kids biblical names. Genesis 22:20. Now it came about after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, and Booz, his brother. Uz and Booz. Kemuel, the father of Aram, and Chesed, and Hazo, and Pildash, and Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Reumah, also bore Teba, and Gaham, and Tahash, and Mahakah. After Abraham returns here from Mount Moriah with Isaac, he receives some welcome news. What he hears is that his brother Nahor, who is still living back in Ur, raising his family, has had the blessing of eight sons. And, of course, some of those sons now are beginning to have children as well. You remember back as we started the study of Abraham in the very beginning, we learned he had a dad named Terah, who then had three sons. His three sons were Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And then Haran dies. That leaves just two sons, Abraham and Nahor. Abraham marries Sarah, Sarai at the time, and leaves to go to Canaan, according to God's instructions, and he takes dad with him, remember? They stop in Haran, the ancestral home of Terah. Terah dies there, so then Abraham moves on without him. So that left Abraham over here in the promised land, many, many hundreds of miles away from his only surviving male relative in his dad's family, which is his brother, Nahor. And This is in a day and age, obviously, with no Internet, no phones, no telegraph. So there would have been very little, if any, contact between these two families for decades. It's been about 65 years since Abraham last heard anything, we presume, about his brother Nahor. So 65 years is a long time. And now at this moment, we're told that Abraham receives word somehow that, hey, Nahor is alive. Nahor has had a family and Nahor has eight sons. And actually, one of his sons, Bethuel, has now had the daughter, Rebecca. And that's a great encouragement for Abraham. It may have been the kind of news that under other circumstances, you might think it would cause Abraham to want to go back. We often want to go back and visit family when we hear they've had a child arrive or just as a family reunion. 
And in this day and age, there would have been a particular interest in going back because it was expected that you would continue to associate within your existing tribe, within your existing family. So it would have been natural for Abraham to want to go back, to be near his family, and to do so especially late in his life. Because as he approaches death, the expected place to be buried is in the traditional family plot, the traditional family land, the the area that your family has always occupied. So though it was fine for him to leave for a while, the expectation was always going to be you're going to come back when you get close to death and when it's time for family members to start to marry. Instead, what Moses records here is that Abraham does not go back, of course, but to the contrary, he remains determined to remain in the land and not to join with the people there, but to join with the people in his ancestral homeland. So there is a bit of a dilemma here. So here's Abraham's plan as we leave chapter 22. He's going to find a burial place in the land that he lives in now, not one in his ancestral home, as a show of faith in God's promises concerning this land. But he's not going to find a wife from the land of Canaan because Canaan is not the people of God. He's going to go back to his home, to his original family members, and look for a wife for his son there. He's remaining in the place where God has placed him, living there in faith, looking forward to the fulfillment of promises, and not trying to find those promises in an earthly context, waiting for them in the spiritual context. But at the same time, though he's, quote, in the world where God has placed him, he is not going to be wedded to that world. Neither he nor his family are going to seek affinity, seek some kind of relationship with a world that does not know the God that he knows. Now, I'm not saying that his family back in Ur were, quote, godly in that sense, but for him, it represented a rejection of the ungodliness of the world around him. So in chapter 23, we see how Abraham deals with the first of these issues, how he is going to obtain a place for his burial that does not require he leave the land in which God has placed him. Chapter 23, verse 1. Now, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Well, Sarah now has passed outside of life and into eternity, and she is coming to an end in our story. She dies at the age of 127. That is a literal age. She is the only woman in all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, the only woman to ever have the age, her age at death recorded in Scripture. So as a passing note, women, as you notice Sarah's importance in Scripture, the frequency with which she's mentioned in the New Testament, the prominence she's given in the old, some of these details like having her age at death mentioned and so on. It becomes evident that she is held in the highest regard in Scripture as an example in all the ways she served Abraham and all the ways she served patiently, not in perfection, but in all that she did, she exemplified faith. She's called out in that way in chapter 11 of Hebrews. So picking one woman in all Scripture who might be the example for women in general, it would seem to be that Scripture is pointing us to Sarah. Now, they've been married at this point over a hundred years. At this point, Abraham himself is about 137 years old, just a few years older than she is. A hundred years of marriage. Abraham goes into the tent, we're told, where she's lying in death and weeps for her. We know how hard it is for someone to lose a person that's close to them, a spouse in particular, and particularly one that we may have had for many years. People who've been married 30, 40, or 50 years. It's just unimaginable in some ways how hard it must be in that situation. 
So how hard is it to lose someone you've been married to for over a hundred years? I don't think we have any basis for comparison. The separation must have been unbearable. And in fact, Abraham lives another 38 years after his wife dies. But her death also greatly affects Isaac. We're going to find in chapter 24 that as Isaac receives his wife, he is comforted by her. And in particular, the scripture says, because it fills the void that was left behind by mother. We can also assume, by the way, that Abraham's mourning here is greatly lessened by the fact, by the confidence that he had in knowing that he would be reunited with her. You know, that's essentially the essence of Christian hope. The world has turned it of late into a hope of material things, which is a complete distortion of the truth of the word. We don't hope because of what God will do for us in the here and now. Whatever he does in the here and now is grace. The hope that Christians uniquely hold to is a hope that knows death is not the end, but a transition from the worst experience we'll ever have to the best experience we could ever hope for. But for the unbeliever, the equation is exactly the opposite, whether they realize it or not. Death presents the departing of the best they'll ever see and an entrance into the worst you can possibly imagine. So the hope that is unique to the Christian faith is a hope that is first and foremost a view of what death means. And so in the loss of a loved one, there is going to be mourning. There can't help but be mourning. And we see Abraham reflecting that here. He goes in and he weeps for her. But the hope that we have knowing that the death process leads to something greater where we will be again reunited in a new form completely changes the perspective of what it means. And I would hope for every believer it gives a sense of of peace in the face of what is an otherwise difficult moment. So we're told here Sarah dies in Hebron. Hebron is 25 miles northeast of Beersheba. And Beersheba, you may remember, was the place that Abraham was said to be living back in chapter 22. So he's been in Beersheba. He was in Beersheba when he departed to go to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. When he finished, they went back to Beersheba. But now we're told that she dies in Hebron, which is 25 miles northeast, as I said. The name of the place here is not Hebron in Abraham's day. It later became known as Hebron because of what it means. The word Hebron literally means friend, as in Abraham, the friend of God. Because of what will now transpire in this chapter, it becomes known as Hebron. Moses just uses that name, of course, because by the time he wrote this, his readers would already know the place as Hebron. Hearing that Sarah has died in this area tells us something about what Abraham's been doing since we last saw him in chapter 22. It means he's still sojourning. He has not settled down in one place. He has moved again. In chapter 22, he's in Beersheba. Now he's moved up into Hebron. So just to reiterate, a nomadic lifestyle is very unusual in this day for anyone who has the wealth of Abraham. This is not normal. That's not what was going on in this day and age. People lived in cities. A man like Abraham would have done one of two things normally. He would have either settled in a city or he, being as wealthy as he is, would have founded a city. Instead, he makes a point of moving all the time, never settling, as a testimony of his faith that he did not see the earth in his day as the fulfillment of God's promises for an inheritance. He knew it was not what he had. It was going to be something he would receive in eternity. But Sarah's death now, while they're in Hebron, places Abraham in a very difficult situation. He has nowhere to bury his wife. And in this day and in this culture and in this climate, a burial had to happen pretty quickly for obvious reasons. And since he's been careful to avoid setting roots down in Canaan, 
He has nowhere to turn now that she has died. And so he has to make a solution for a burial place. He wants it to be a place for her and him. So he needs to purchase something. And he begins to obtain a burial plot in the rest of the chapter. Look at verse 3. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. We're told he, he gets up from his dead, which is, of course, his wife's body. And he goes, although it doesn't say it here clearly in the text, you come to know that he's gone into the nearest city in the Hittite community around Hebron. And the city is not named here, but we hear this reference to the sons of Heth. The sons of Heth is a reference to the city fathers or the ruling clan that has established a city in this region. It may have been called Heth or it may have been called after the family name. So the sons of Heth are a reference to probably the literal descendants of the man who founded this city. But it may also include non-relatives who are also part of the city leadership, the fathers of the city, the elders. But whether they are related or not, these are the men who control the city and control the region. In this day and in this culture, the land was not owned in the sense of how we own land today. All land was owned by the sovereign, the king. But then the land was divided up and sold in a limited sense to people who would live on it and work it. But they owed that land back to the sovereign and it was a serfdom essentially. But the way that relationship played out is they kept the land, they worked it, they lived off it. They paid some portion of the proceeds back to the king as a tax or as a privilege for having the land. They also owed the king service when requested. So if there was a need for an army, they would have to participate in the army. Or if there was some other need to do a civic work, they might be called into service, etc. That's how the relationship played out. Abraham knows this. He's just been sojourning in the land. He's owed nobody anything up to this point. But he understands that if he's going to find a permanent place for burial, somebody who has land has to make part of it available to him on some condition, in some way. And any purchase of land in the Eastern tradition followed a very specific, a very curious, very fascinating pattern of negotiation. And what we're about to see in this chapter is the Middle East method of negotiating, both then and to a certain extent still today. It's a carefully orchestrated dance. And if you're someone who may have a passing interest in how negotiation is done or how you work to strike a deal with someone and do it in a careful way, well, you could do worse than study chapter 23 of Genesis. The goal is that both sides obtain the best possible terms while saving face. And it's the saving face aspect of this deal that is so important to the Eastern culture. More than getting a good price, you had to look like you got a fair deal. No one could see either side be taken advantage of. No one could walk away feeling like they were made a fool. That's very important to the way this deal is done. Abraham is not of this world, but he follows its culture and traditions at least enough to obtain what he needs without compromising his witness. So that's his careful balance here. He's less concerned about saving face than he is about saving his witness, which is a different issue. And sometimes it's hard for us to see that difference in our everyday life. I want to be a fool for Christ. I don't want to make Christ look like a fool. And in this case, Abraham wants to project his faith in and dependence upon God while not doing unnecessary damage to the relationships within the culture, which then just become an impediment for him. Very careful, 
Very interesting and very well orchestrated dance. So let's look at how it plays out in what I've already read. Abraham here begins by announcing his intention and his need to purchase land to bury his wife. Now, immediately, the sons of Heth and all of those who are listening now in the gate of the city, which is where this deal is being done, they all know something about Abraham. They know he's desperate because of his circumstances. They know he can't wait very long for this negotiation to conclude. It's like going up to buy an airplane ticket as they're boarding the plane. You're in a very bad negotiating position, right? You're going to pay whatever the price is, more or less. And so Abraham has voluntarily given this information because he, again, is not interested in playing the game more than necessary. He's showing his cards in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect. But now there's a reciprocating issue here for the sons of Heth. The sons of Heth themselves would lose personal dignity if they appear to gouge Abraham over his misfortune. So they can't play this too heavy either. They've got to be careful about looking magnanimous while at the same time trying to get as much money as they can. It's really interesting how they do this. So they play their part in the dance. They begin by calling Abraham Lord. It's just a sign of respect. It's deferential. They compliment him as mighty prince among them. Now, there's plenty of truth to this. I mean, God has made Abraham a very mighty man and given him a lot of wealth. So it's not as though these statements are lies, of course. But the point of their statement is not to merely give him his acknowledgement as as something due him. Their point is to set the scene for the rest of the conversation. They want to seem magnanimous and gracious. And then they make the first move in the dance. They tell Abraham he can have any of the choicest graves. He can just have them. They just want to give it to him. And at first, that sounds like a very generous offer, doesn't it? Perfect. Abraham should just be able to say, fine, I'll take that one. Deal done. But that's not how it works. That's not how anything worked in that day. If Abraham had actually accepted that offer, he would have greatly offended the sons of Heth and probably never received any plot under any terms. So he's not fooled by their offer of a free plot. But he has to acknowledge the fact that they pretended to offer him a free plot. So then he responds in verse 7. Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. So Abraham here has apparently been seated on the ground during the conversations, which would have been customary as they did business in the gate of the city. But as he hears them say, you can have anything you want, just take with a choices plot. Well, now he needs to acknowledge that grace, that, that offer. So he stands up and he bows to them. It's sort of a sign of respect. It acknowledges the extreme kindness of that offer. So he's, re, he's paid kindness, repaid kindness with kindness. That's the dance they expected. That's the response that the sons of Heth were looking for when they made this ridiculous, insincere offer. And Abraham has done as they expected. He bows not only before them, you notice, but before the people of the land. And that would tell us that during this negotiation in the gate, the people who come in and out through the city, through the city gate, have caught interest in this process of whatever's happening, and they've stayed around to watch. So there's a gathering crowd observing this whole moment. So the elders have made a gracious offer in a public setting, expecting to receive credit for their graciousness, and Abraham has responded in kind. It's just a big play. But then Abraham continues in the negotiation. He ignores their offer, which is what they expect him to do, 
And he takes another step forward in the dance in this process. He says, if it's true that you really do want me to be able to bury my dead in your land, then I need you to direct Ephraim, who is one of the men sitting in this scene in this gate, to sell me this cave that I know he has on his land, the cave of Machpelah. It's obvious Abraham knew of this place. Somehow he had come to know of it. And he must have assumed or already determined that this is a good place for a burial. So he already had a place in mind, and now he's named it. But now the city elders, the leaders here, the sons of Heth, they have the power to broker this deal, to cause the owner to sell it if they determine that's the right thing to do. And that's why Abraham is talking here in the gate. But notice he adds here, I want them to sell it to me. I want him to give it to me for the full price. I'm offering to pay full retail. Doesn't seem like a very good negotiating tactic, does it? But actually, that would have been the proper tactic. You notice how they start out on extremes. I'll give it to you for free. Oh, no, 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 no. Couldn't do that. I'll pay you extra. Well, that's how it works initially. And then they just start moving to the center. That's the negotiating process. If you ever go to the part of the world, try this. Although I'm not sure if it still works like this. And if you offer full price, you may get stuck. Please don't sue me. All right. Well, in this day, honor still counted for something. So now it's time for the deal to go forward. Verse 10. Now, Ephraim was sitting among the sons of Heth. So the man that owns the cave is sitting right there hearing all of this. And Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even all who went in at the gate of the city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I will give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. So here we have Ephraim sitting there in the gate. He happens to be there. I don't think that's coincidence. I think this is uh, something Abraham has intended. He's brought this moment about because he wants this deal to be done and he's picked this place. And the fact that Ephraim is sitting there tells us he may have actually been one of the elders of the city, one of the leaders, which would have made this deal go a little faster. That would explain why Abraham would have picked this place. He needs a fast deal. So he picks a place that's not only suitable, but whose owner is present and one of the leaders and ready to make a deal right there in the moment. So Abraham is trying to make this happen quickly. Now, the cave owner, for his part, stands up or sits wherever he is, and he says at the beginning here, my Lord, also repeating the whole dance. But then you notice he starts again by saying at the extreme, I will give it to you. I'll just give it to you. And then he goes a step further here. He says, I'm not only going to give you the cave. Shoot, I'll give you the whole field. You can just have the field that has the cave. Just seems like a wonderful, generous offer again. But it's not. It's a negotiation. And neither the land nor the cave is going to be free at the end of all of this. Abraham knows that. Everyone listening knows that. No one's fooled. Now, the offer here to give the entire field is not merely an attempt to seem all the more generous. There's actually benefit for Ephraim to have sold not just the cave, but also the field. And it goes back to the laws of the day and the way land was apportioned. Under the Hittite laws of the day, the king collects taxes on plots or fields of land. And the owner of the field is responsible for the taxes on that land. If they give a small part of it to somebody else, they're still responsible for the taxes of the whole. Because the smallest divisible taxable plot was this field or or designation of a field. So what the guy is saying is, if you want part of my land, you're going to have to take it all because I'm not going to pay taxes on the part that you've got. So he's increasing the value of it. It'd be like you saying, I'd like to rent a bedroom in your house. And you say, well, you're going to have to buy my entire house then. That's what this guy has just put out on the table. So it sounds really nice, doesn't it? But everyone, in the, everyone there knows exactly what's happening. So now it's Abraham's turn. Verse 12. Abraham 
bowed before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephraim in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field. Accept it for me that I may bury my dead there. So this is the next dance step. Abraham bows again. So he shows that respect and thanks for the generous, quote, generous offer, even though he knows it wasn't sincere. And then he agrees to the deal. He says, "Okay, you want me to buy the whole field? Fine, I'll buy the whole field. So that's the step here that just took place in the negotiation. What just happened was Abraham agreed to the terms, which is if you want the cave, you've got to buy the whole field. Okay, fine. That's what Abraham has said. Normally, you would have expected a little bit more back and forth over that term, over whether or not to have to pay for the whole field. Abraham just runs quite you know, fast into the other guy's corner and says, fine, I'll buy the land. That was a bit out of character. It shows us that Abraham is first very insistent on doing this quickly. We understand why. But it also shows something about Abraham's perspective on the whole thing. He's not interested here in saving face, not his face. In other words, he's interested in saving face for them because that only makes the deal harder if he doesn't. But as far as his own pride, his own reputation, he's not worried about that. His own money, he's not worried about that. All of that is from God anyway. What a wonderful freedom it is to truly rely on the Lord. And not just for the obvious material needs, but for every aspect of life, even for our ego, which is a fancy word for pride, which is all bad. You know, but for the fact that we don't have to defend ourselves in this life for even issues of face-saving ego, because God will take care of that in eternity. And so then he says, I'll pay, and Ephraim now decides, I may have him where I want him. Let me push hard. And in verse 14, then Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth. 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. Well, this is very interesting. And of course, it requires a little bit of insight about the culture as well. He cleverly does this. Ephron asks... Why should a piece of land that's only worth about 400 shekels be a, be a matter of dispute for us? This shouldn't stand in the way of our friendship. <laughs> in effect, he's saying that this piece of land is basically worthless anyway, right? But you'd have to know what the monetary value of 400 shekels is to really get the full meaning of what he just said. It's, it's one thing if it were really a fairly worthless piece of land, then the statement makes great sense. But the problem here is it's not worthless if he wants him to pay 400 shekels of silver. To give you some comparisons, an acre of land in Abraham's day was generally valued at about 40 shekels. And assuming this plot, this field is somewhere in that range or that size, he's asking Abraham to pay 10 times the actual value of the land in this moment. And he says to him at the end, if you notice in each of these steps of the negotiation, go bury your dead, go bury your dead. Why does he keep repeating that? Because he wants to remind Abraham the clock is ticking on your dead wife's body to put it bluntly. So while we're sitting here talking, she's not getting any better. You might want to bury her fast. In other words, it's putting more and more pressure on Abraham. That's his style of technique here. But of course, the way he says it, it sounds so nice. We just want to make it possible for you to bury your dead. So at this point, in today's dollars, an acre of land by 40 shekels would be about $5,600 for an acre of land. He's asking for $56,000 for this acre of land, and done it in this artful way. Wow, what's it worth? $56,000. Why would that get in the way of our friendship? 
Now, he's trying to take advantage of Abraham. And what's interesting is everyone there would have known it. What they're all expecting, of course, is for Abraham to have some artful, face-saving way to push back. And that would have kept the process going. And they would have eventually arrived at probably $5,600, the going price for land. Maybe a little more since Abraham's desperate. But not 56000 But what Abraham here does is completely contrary to what they expect. And in fact, this is probably the most difficult moment for a buyer. Honestly, it's very hard to turn this now in a way that lets you have advantage without essentially making the other man to be a liar when you try to reduce the price. But Abraham doesn't play that game at all. He weighs out the silver. He weighs out literally 100 pounds of silver. 400 shekels is 100 pounds of silver. Commercial standard, which is a way of saying he made double sure that he gave an exact amount. He didn't cheat the man even in the weight of the coins. Everything was exact to the amount. And he did it in view of everyone here in the gate. What do you think he communicated to the people around him as he did this? Well, a host of things. He grossly overpaid for land. Grossly. Knowingly. They know he's desperate, but they know he's not that desperate. A, a woman who needs to be buried in a, in a short period of time doesn't require this kind of desperate move, if that's all you're worried about. It's obvious that his interests here go well beyond that. He will not be encumbered by anyone's statement that anyone else but God himself has blessed him with what he has. Even to the point of God orchestrating this moment so that when the land is paid, he pays so grossly more than necessary that no one could ever say that anyone in that moment did Abraham a favor. The only thing that could be said is Abraham took care of himself with what God had provided for him. It's a heart of trust that God is behind everything he had. And so this was God's way of ensuring that no one misunderstood where he traced his blessing. It's a wonderful example of Abraham's faith lived out in the moment. He cared more about his reputation with God than he did about his money. And you might say as well, more about how he treated his wife in death than about how he was treated in life. Verse 17. So Ephraim's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and the cave, which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field, that were within all the confines of its border, were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarai, Sarah, his wife, in the cave at the field of Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. And so at the end of this chapter now, Abraham has a place in the land for the first time, he owns a part of Canaan, but a small part, only a single field. And only because he was required to buy the field, according to the sons of Heth, in order to obtain the burial cave for he and his wife. Everything speaks to him being reluctant and at the same time doing whatever was required as God provided so that his faith was not compromised in the deal. He is now able to ensure that his personal remains and those of his wife will never leave the land God gave him. But he only bought what was necessary. He never buys any more land in his life as far as we know. And I'm sure he didn't because he was content to wait for the Lord to give Abraham the land that he promised in eternity. He was willing to buy a little land at an exorbitant price rather than return to the land of his ancestors where he could have been buried for little or nothing. He always had that option. You notice that last verse seems a bit unnecessary. 
sort of stuck in there on verse nine, after verse 19. You could have ended the chapter at verse 19 and never said anything in verse 20, and you, you would never have noticed that there was anything missing. Why is verse 20 there then? Because the point of chapter 23 is not the burial of Sarah. The burial of Sarah was simply the occasion that God used to produce the real message of the chapter. The real message of the chapter is Abraham has now once and for all established a place in the land for him and his family. He has, if you will, just put a down payment on the land that will one day be his in eternity as a sign, as a show of his faith that not even in death will he be separated from this place that God has appointed to him. This place, this cave, or in the field generally, will become the resting place for he and his wife, also Isaac and Jacob and Rebekah and Leah will all be buried here as a result of his family setting in place this home. Next week as we come back in and start to be uh, look at the second issue, the study of how Isaac obtains his wife, we'll come back to this discussion of the land and of Abraham's attachment to it, but not his investment in the people. And I'll also let you know as we study that we're going to be learning more about the type of Isaac. Remember in chapter 22, we learned how he was a type of Christ in the way he was taken up to the mountain. Well, he returns to being a type in chapter 24 as we watch him obtain his wife. It's a fascinating story. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we finish today, and I hope you'll be back to study chapter 24 with us. Heavenly Father, give us a hope that Abraham had to know that we have been placed where you put us for reasons and that we will stay here as long as you keep us and that we will do the work you've given us without a question as to whether we deserve or whether we have another place we should rather be. But this is the place, our life, our city, our home, our business, and we will work there for as long as you see fit to keep us there. But let us also have the inspiration and the faith that Abraham had to know the difference between being in a place and being of the place. And Abraham was in the world of Canaan, but he was not of that world. And he stood apart his whole life and made every effort to show that. And he did it, Father, so that he would honor you before he would honor the world. And I ask, Father, that each of us would have that same heart in our own way, through the walk you've given us, that we would be a man or woman of God whose life would reflect Christ. And because we reflect him, people come by that reflection and ask questions and wish to know what we know. And that our, our difference, Father, our light would be what draws people. And we ask, Father, that as we study further into the book of Genesis, now almost halfway through and with so much yet to go, that we would have the perseverance and the dedication to continue with it. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the people, as always. Bring us back next week with more, if you would, so that we may share the love of Christ with them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.